Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Today with Professor Lisa Gunther, who is Queen's National Scholar in Political Philosophy and Critical Prison Studies. She's the author of Solitary Confinement, Social Death and Its Afterlives, and The Gift of, of the Other, Levinas and the Politics of Reproduction, and co-editor of Death and Other Penalties, Philosophy in a Time of Mass Incarceration. As a public philosopher, Gunther's work has appeared in the New York Times, The Globe and Mail, Aeon, and CBC's Ideas. She's currently working on a critical phenomenology of carceral space and is also working on the P4W Memorial Collective in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, to create a memorial for women who died at the prison for, for women before it was permanently closed in 2000. I came across Professor Gunther's uh, scholarship and was really eager to have a chance to talk about issues of confinement and beyond. Thank you so much for taking time to talk. Thank you for the opportunity to talk with you. So to jump right in here, as, as a noted public scholar, um, what are some of the questions and issues that have motivated your work? So most of my scholarship, whether it's within the academy or more public facing, begins with the place where I am and thinking about what is, the, what is, the, what is this place? What is the situation that I find myself in? And um, my training as a phenomenologist, as a philosopher, um, really orients me towards trying to notice what would normally go unnoticed in that place. So phenomenology is this practice of um, trying to describe your first person experience in a way that uh, allows you to move beyond some of the shortcuts that we normally make in our thought and perception and to really notice and let uh, the relationships that constitute a such situation show forth. So my public scholarship is really about trying to think about where am I and what are the relationships that make this place what it is. So when I lived in Nashville, that was when I actually first began speaking and thinking about prisons. Um, I, I just, when I moved to Nashville, I had this feeling that the way that space is organized in this city um, is very segregated in terms of race and class. So what's going on there? What are the the relationships that might not be sort of visible on the surface that might be organizing that space. And thanks to uh, an encounter with Angela Davis, who came to Vanderbilt, where I was teaching at the time, to offer uh, a um, graduate seminar on slavery, she introduced me to this notion of the prison industrial complex. And it was that idea that prisons organize the economic life of the United States and the social life of the United States in ways that go far beyond uh, any individual bricks and mortar prison that helped me to begin making sense of the place where I had 
come to live. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. So to start on the human level, before we think about animals as well, what's the relationship between physically a lot, being physically alive and interacting with others? Can one be completely alone and still considered fully alive? I guess to ask the question differently, are, are, are cells um, and, and cages for humans, uh, is that a moral problem? Um, Absolutely. You know, and what's the nature of the moral problem of confinement? So in this, I was a professor at Vanderbilt when Angela Davis came to, to teach this graduate seminar, but I asked if I could sit in on it because I wanted to learn from her. And one of the things that I learned in this course was that the practice of solitary confinement began as this Christian Protestant project of trying to force people into um, a, a relate a different relationship to themselves and to God where you would strip away the world and make them reflect on what they have done and repent for their sins and be redeemed even reborn and so that project of trying to force people into reflection by separating them from the world and from other people failed almost immediately but that didn't prevent um, the United States and Scandinavian countries and and um, other sort of forerunners in this experiment in solitary confinement from persisting in isolating people from others. And so many of the prisoners who were in this situation did not report some kind of amazing spiritual redemption. They said that they felt like they were buried alive or that they were living a life that was like a kind of death. And so in this course with Angela Davis, she introduced this notion of social death which a uh, historian, Orlando Patterson, used to describe what he thought was the core structure of slavery. That it wasn't just the confusion or a conflation of property and personhood. It wasn't just a practice in which people were forced to work without pay, but it was the production of this specific form of life that was also a social death that characterized slavery in many different um, periods of history and many different geographical areas. And so I began to think about the practice of solitary confinement as a form of social death, where someone was so extremely isolated from other living beings that they began to feel like this was a death in life. Wow, wow. Okay, there's a lot to say about that, but moving forward a little bit, um, what's the relationship between industrial slaughterhouses when we're looking at animals and abusive policies in prison as we see them today? Yeah, so um, in my book on solitary confinement, I, I think about this a little bit, and I, um, I guess the question was raised for me by um, the Attica Declaration in 1971. So when there's this uprising at Attica prison, um, there, there was a collective statement and a series of demands that, that prisoners put together. And they said, we are not slaves. We are not animals. We deserve to be treated as human beings. And so that led me to think about, well, what are the effects of extreme isolation or of caging on other non-human animals? And while I don't want to make some kind of um, strict analogy between cages in prisons and cages in zoos and laboratories and, and factory farms, something that I was struck by was that um, animals like chickens and 
and pigs and cattle who were confined in these very small spaces and often overcrowded would display some of the same uh, behaviors that people in extremely isolated and or crowded um, spatial situations display. And so um, psychiatrists have called the symptoms of extreme isolation in prison shoe syndrome or security housing unit sy syndrome, which is security housing unit is one of the names for solitary confinement. Um, and one of the symptoms of security housing unit sy syndrome is um, self-harm or repetitive behaviors like pacing, rocking, being unable to unhinge yourself from a repetitive, um, often self-destructive behavior. And so this got me thinking that if, if other non-human animals also display these kinds of symptoms when they're caged, then does that tell us something about what it means to be a human creature as well? That um, rather than opposing the human to the animal as if it's okay to cage animals, but it's not okay to cage human beings, maybe we actually share some kind of relational sense of structure of personhood with other non-human animals. Mm -hmm. So that a person isn't just a unit uh, you know, a subjective unit placed into the container of the world, but a person is a, a network of relationships and that we need other people, other living beings to um, engage with, to um, in some ways echo or reflect what we put out into the world, in other ways to contest or question or limit us, but that without this interaction with other living beings and with a place and a spatial situation that we can stretch out into and, and with openings or horizons uh, to other places, that it's, it becomes increasingly difficult to remain who we are as individual subjects. Mm. You know, so I, I hadn't planned to ask you about Levinas, but since you're a Levinas scholar, I'd like to ask you two things here as well, if I may. Um, one is, um, how does Levinas understand the face of an animal? So mm -hmm. Buber, Buber I, I, when I spoke with Professor Paul Mendes-Flor, uh, a Buber scholar, he talked about Buber's encounter with a horse and with a cat. And I wonder that in Levinas's uh, oversimplified ideology about how the commanding presence of a face of another, moving away from abstract metaphysics into the concrete, that we're unable to uh, dismiss that dignity and cause harm. If in any way that, um, he, he, obviously he doesn't conflate human dignity with animal rights, but what, what does the encounter with the face of an animal mean? That's the first. And then the second question is, what, what, what does it mean in, in Levinas' thought to, um, to not see the face, but know they're there? When, when prisoners are hidden away, or those are hidden in confinement in uh, industrial systems, where you know that the incarceration rate is growing, but you can't actually encounter that face. How do we awaken, how do we awaken that moral consciousness in the same way? Yeah, great questions. So Levinas um, wrote a short essay um, about an encounter that he had with a dog when he was a prisoner in a Nazi work camp uh, during the Second World War. And so he calls this dog the last Kantian in Nazi Germany. Because even though people, you know, Germans who were living in this small town and other people were incarcerated, 
would look away from them or look at them in a way that really dehumanized them and turned them into um, things or, or uh, lesser beings. That this dog would come and greet them when they, they came back from the forest having done a day of hard labor. That this dog still treated them as human beings. He didn't know that you know, the regime had changed and all of the rules had changed. Um, and so the, even though Levinas doesn't say, and this dog had a face in the with this ethical meaning that, that he um, attributes to the face in his ethics, um, I think that there's, a, there's something about his appreciation for this dog's affirmation of like, yes, you are there, I see you. And um, I will not pretend that you are a mere thing in my presence. Um, later in his life, Levinas was interviewed by a number of people who pressed him on this question of whether the animal, non-human animal, has a face. And he never said, no, absolutely not. But he said the ethical meaning of the face doesn't arise in the relationship with a non-human animal. It arises in the interhuman. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we can have ethical obligations to non-human animals, but the meaning of ethics arises in the face, the human, interhuman face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, but in the absence of an interhuman face-to-face -face encounter between people who are not incarcerated and the 2.3 million people who are incarcerated incarcerated in the United States. Um, this is one of the questions of that that really underlies my, especially the the public philosophical and political work that I do on prisons. How do you make people who don't have some kind of um, personal connection to someone in prison see that this really is an ethical question that impacts all of us? And so sometimes um, just bringing the, uh, the voices and or the artwork of people who are incarcerated into public space and sharing that with other people uh, who don't have a con direct connection with people in prison can create a situation for recognition or empathy. But that I find is really fraught because sometimes um, Sometimes that connection just emerges spontaneously. Other times it just feels like you're trying to make an argument that, you know, there are human beings who are suffering and, uh, and you should care about them. If, if that doesn't have immediate uptake, it's hard to argue someone into the position where they care about people that they're not otherwise inclined to think about. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of what I have been doing in the last few years is trying to shift um, my focus to looking, to, to making visible how places that are not in any way obviously prisons, jails, or detention centers, but places like um, college campuses or suburbs or gated communities are structured by a carceral logic or by a punitive and uh, security-oriented logic <clears throat> that has as its counterpart these other spaces of confinement and caging, but that if we actually want to understand this, the place where we live in highly protected 
um, parts of the world, we also have to understand how those technologies of protection are impacting and, and confining and exiling other people. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if that works um, any better than, than the other approach of trying to be a, a translator or a go-between uh, to bring the voices of people on the inside out into the public. Um, but those are two of the ways that I've tried to make that connection meaningful for people. Okay, and, and trying to undermine sort of the, the root causes here, what are some of the other intersectional dynamics? I mean, we're aware of the, the, um, the blossoming uh, prison population. We're aware of, of the, the, the growing um, factory farming industry. We, we hear about children in cages coming across the border. But what is it in American psychology today that leads to an unprecedented, a uh, historically unprecedented level of confinement. What, 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 are, what, is this, what is the philosophy or psychologies in place that, um, it, that play out in other arenas that enable us to justify, or enable some to justify such mechanisms? Yeah, so I don't, I don't know if I would look to psychology so much as to structure and infrastructure. So, uh -huh. so definitely, um, race and class and gender and sexuality play a role in who is targeted for police surveillance, who is more likely to be arrested for, um, for example, drug possession or drug use. Even if levels of drug use are quite uh, similar across different levels, uh, different gr class groups, racial groups, um, uh, gender identity groups, people who need who are forced to uh, live their lives in public because of poverty or who, whose neighborhoods have been targeted by police as high crime neighborhoods are just going to be subject to much more surveillance than other people who live in much more protected spaces. Um, and, and so that kind of structure where um, prisons and police end up being deployed uh, primarily against people of color, poor people, and people with different gender expressions or, or um, sexualities is something that characterizes the US prison system. And um, I, I, I think what we need to ask ourselves is less, like, is there some devious psychology that drives that? And more about why we might accept or ignore a situation like that that might be the product of um, no one diabolical plan, but many different systems and histories that converge to, to produce precarity for some people and protection for others. Why do we accept that or why do we tolerate that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so just the last question for you. I could, I could talk with you all day, but I want to honor your time. <laughs> Um, what would you, I mean, you, you can't ask a philosopher of their end goal because you're a thinker. It's, it's very complex and there's a lot there. But what would you like your readers and supporters to most understand and advocate? Um, you know, if you can concretize some of your thought uh, into the practical arena. So I guess I would, I would want people to pay attention to where they are and to, to pay attention to the relationships mm. that make... Um, they're a little place in the world, 
possible? And how can we um, amplify relationships so that they are relationships of, of mutual support and connection and listening rather than relationships of refused relationality? Because this is the thing about the, the prison, a, a prison system that puts 1% of its population behind bars. That is a relationship, whether we like it or not. Um, even if we put people behind bars, there are all kinds of technologies, laws, practices that maintain a relationship of refused relationality. And what I think I want my work to do and what I would love to invite other people to do is to pay attention to those relationships so that um, we, we create and affirm relations of mutuality and of uh, support rather than of refusal. Fantastic. Uh, friends, be sure to check out Professor Lisa Gunther's uh, amazing scholarship and writings. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.